Before I get to the book, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about The Open University. I stand before you now because of The Open University. It changed my life as a person and as a writer. And I want to share just a couple of the highlights of that journey as a way of saying thank you to the institution that shaped me. But first, I need to tell you just a bit about myself. I grew up in a culture that valued knowledge. It was a tiny northern logging and farming community of less than 100 people, none of them with university degrees. But it was a culture that valued knowledge nonetheless. Around the kitchen tables when stories were told, the people referred to with awe were always the people with knowledge. Not book knowledge, a certain derision was reserved for people who had book learning but no bush smarts. But there was deep respect for the practical skill sets for surviving in a challenging and often unforgiving environment. I also grew up in a home that valued learning. My mother was an elementary school teacher, and my dad always said learning was never wasted, even if it only meant that someday I'd be able to carry on a conversation with someone who might become a friend. So I was steeped in this idea of learning and knowledge being something to aspire to. You might wonder why it was that I didn't get to university until I was in my 30s. I was a precocious and difficult teenager, and I left home far too soon. I was on my own at 15, just as I was finishing grade 11. It was my great good fortune that I had by then a solid summer job at the Mount Robson Guest Ranch. Those were my trail guide and outfitters cooks years, and it was the kind of place where you didn't need any money. They housed you and fed you, and I didn't cash my paychecks until the end of the summer. So I had enough money to rent a room and return to high school to finish grade 12. I graduated at 16, still far too young, and the next 10 years were consumed with survival, paying the rent and buying groceries. But the idea of learning, of higher learning, was always with me. And finally, in the mid-90s, after I'd sold the newspaper that I'd given every minute to for nearly 10 years, I had the time to pursue it. From Valemount, 200 miles in any direction to a campus, enter the Open University. How many of you took a course from open learning back in the day? Okay, so some of you know how it worked. You signed up, sent your checks, and your course arrived in the mail in a plain brown cardboard box with everything you needed to complete the work, including the envelopes to send your assignments off to the instructor tutor who graded you and provided feedback. I think toward the end I could fax assignments. If your course had lectures, there were two ways to access them. You could watch them on Knowledge Network at certain times, Biology 100 at 7 p.m. Tuesday, or you could get them on tape, VHS tape. How ancient that all seems. I remember one set of lectures in particular because the professor had this crazy bushy hair and long sideburns and wore, I kid you not, plaid bell bottoms. But I digress. I promised highlights. One of the highlights of my open learning education was an introductory course in astronomy. Yes, astronomy. Astronomy 100. Why? I couldn't say, but I'm so glad I did. In addition to learning the circumference of the planets and their order from the sun, most very empty mugs just nest under Pluto, I learned something I'd never understood before. I learned that knowledge didn't come in books. I learned that it was created by the curious. I learned that the ancient Chinese astronomers and then Copernicus and Galileo looked up at the night sky and paid attention. They watched and learned that some things happened predictably every year and they made guesses about why that was. And all that they learned and wrote down they passed on to the next generation of astronomers who looked up 
and paid attention and saw what was happening and sometimes they overturned the received wisdom and came up with new guesses about why things happened the way they did and so on down through the generations to the astronomers who learned by watching through the Hubble telescope and now the newly launched James Webb telescope a million miles away from us in deep space. I often think about that handing down of knowledge and its constant refinement when I'm in the garden. I'm mostly a vegetable gardener. I like flowers, but for me, it's about food. And I like to think about that first human who noticed that the plant came from the seed and that the seed could be harvested and saved and planted closer to home where there were fewer hungry lions or bears and how they handed that knowledge on to the next generation and so on down to me who can now Google any plant and get very detailed planting and growing and seed harvesting instructions. And that's how Astronomy 100 changed me, made me into a person who believes the knowledge is our human heritage, that it belongs to all of us, and that it has an inherent value that has nothing whatever to do with currency. To get to the other highlight of my open learning experience, I need to tell you another little piece of my history. It was about 1985-86, I was working full-time, I was a single mother to a five-year-old, but that idea about learning was still nagging away at me, so I signed up for my first open learning course, English Literature. It was an introductory English course at the 100 level, but it was, hmm, circumstances probably played a part, but it was also the curriculum that defeated me. English Literature 100 was peopled by the, how to say this, by the dead Englishmen. To say their stories did not resonate with, with me would be a colossal understatement. I was a logger's daughter from the Northern Rockies. I didn't get any of their stories. I did not complete my first open learning course and it would be 10 years before I tried again. But lo, when I tried again, there was a new option for first year English requirements. A pair of Made in BC courses, English 101 and 102, called at the time Composition and Native Indian Literature. I finished both of them. There, I found voices I recognized and stories I could relate to. Not because we shared a culture, but because we shared a geography. We shared a place outside the mainstream, outside the establishment, on the periphery of things. But we still had stories to tell and knowledge to pass on. We shared a tradition of knowledge outside of books, of respect for skills, of respect for the land we inhabited. It was there that I found the confidence to think about writing the stories I knew, using the material I'd gathered from my life. It was there I first gained the confidence in myself as a writer. And that, as Frost said, has made all the difference. I can follow the thread in time from those days of plaid bell bottoms and a literature I could relate to, to this knowledge I'm going to read from tonight. All of that in a plain brown cardboard box that arrived in the mail. Such is the magic of the open university. Hi, and welcome to the TRU Alumni Podcast, hosted by me, Dustin McIntyre, TRU Alumni Manager at TRU Alumni. I'm joined today by Maureen Brownlee, an author hailing from Belmont, British Columbia, on the traditional territory of the Lady Pena and Swamp First Nations. She has published two books, first in 2013 with Logger's Daughter, and now in 2022 with Cambium Blue. Maureen Brownlee was born and raised on the western slopes of the Northern Rockies. 
She has lived and worked in various BC communities, always returning to her home mountain, or her mountain home, pardon me. Through largely self-taught, her writing has greatly benefited from the tutelage of the talented writers who have sustained Western Canada's creative writing workshops. Her writing education has included workshops at Island Mountain School of the Arts, Fernie Writers Conference, and Sage Hill Writing Experience. She studied English and creative writing at BC Open University, now TRU, and UNBC. Welcome to the podcast, Maureen Brownlee. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. What a, what a privilege. This is my first podcast, doing it in person, and I'm so happy it's with you, a published author and uh, open learning uh, alumni. Thank you. Thank you very much. I understand this is your first time on campus at TRU as well. What's your first experience been? Uh, it's a lovely campus. It, uh, I, I drove around last night and I confess I got a little bit lost last night. But this morning when I came, I had a better look at the map and found my parking right away and had a walk around and I really like it. It's a very lovely campus. Yes, we're uh, very privileged to uh, be here uh, in Kamloops. Uh, so you were born in McBride. You started the Valley Sentinel. Um, you decided to go to BC Open Learning in the 1980s and 90s, and then you found your, your voice in book writing. Tell us about that process. Okay. I, I, uh, I started uh, taking courses from the, what was then Open Learning. In, well, I took my first course from Open Learning in 1985. I was a young single mother. I was working full time, uh, and I thought that I still needed to you know, get an education. I had graduated from high school, but I hadn't gone on, and I took uh, English 100, English Literature 100, and the curriculum, I have to say, defeated me. It was mm, the, the dead Englishman, and n nothing about their stories connected for me. So circumstances probably had something to do with it, but also the, 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 the lack of connection to the, to the material also had something to do with it. So I didn't finish my first open university course. And it would be 10 years before I tried again. But when I tried again, lo, there was in the catalog uh, two BC, made in BC uh, English courses and called at that time uh, Composition and Native Indian Literature. And there I found stories that I did connect to, not, not because we shared a culture, but because we shared a geography. And I could understand the stories. And yeah, I found my voice there. I found the confidence to think about where I came from and the material that I had to write about. That's that's incredible. So you, you kind of mentioned it. You you said that First Nations literature and your place within British Columbia inspired you. Now you're uh, a northern BC resident now. You've traveled all throughout BC, but again, you always return home. What is it about the the northern mountains and and the peoples of that that space that inspire you? It, part of it is the mountains. Uh, part of it is the space. Uh, the other thing, though, I always talk about the mountains, but part of my northern uh, BC experience is really about the forests. So I think as much as the mountains, it's the forests and the places in the forest and the access to um, uninhabited spaces and wild spaces that keeps me uh, in the north. Yeah, absolutely. It seems that both your books are inspired by forest, and it's the story that evolves around the forest and the trees and, and what happens to the forest and the trees. So uh, that brings me perfectly to my next question, Cambium Blue, set in 1995 at the start of the pine beetle infestation. The logging industry was substantially altered, and many towns transitioned toward 
resort towns or tourism destinations. Now, is that something that has impacted you personally coming from the north? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, in, especially in the in the middle '90s when when the lumber industry took a tumble, the pine beetles were just starting. Um, there was some back and forth about softwood tariffs, as there always is, uh, and a bunch of mills clo were closing. And the provincial government at that time was really pushing uh, the idea that, that that we could transition to tourism, that it, that every town could be a resort town, and the town that uh, that I was in at the time had a couple of developers who came by with pretty pictures and grand promises and uh, the consultants made a lot of money and uh, and and, and the, the real estate developers made a lot of money and they came to nothing the, the ordinary people didn't really get anything out of it so yes I, I am a bit familiar with yeah. that scenario the, the economic spin-off that everyone promises uh, wasn't there didn't materialize no yeah and so that you know this was set the book uh, set 30 almost 30 years ago I, I, yeah we don't I, it's hard to t it's hard to think about that that's 30 years ago that was 1995 yeah, yeah. isn't that um, know, it's crazy and what is it like now in the north have you seen that transition um, is it a, a mixture of industry and tourism hmm Certainly, there has been a shift in, in Valemount, where I live, uh, toward a more... I just read an article uh, just recently about Cumberland, and they were worried about uh, gentrification. And it, it struck a chord because I thought, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Is it, it is. It's a kind of gentrification of these small towns, particularly since COVID and everybody wanted to run away from Vancouver, so there's been a real influx of people from away and and they do they bring a different energy to the place yeah young people being priced out of the big cities are going to smaller cities and then pricing out the local folk and it's, it's true yeah. it's this real spin-off where you know where where's the balance yeah, and I don't think we've found it yet no I don't know I don't think we have and I, I don't have those answers course right then the world will evolve as it will and we'll but, see but you have a voice with your book I do so tell us about cambium blue it's about three main characters and I'll let you speak a little bit more to it yeah cambium blue is about a town in transition so it's about a small town whose mill has closed and who's who's being uh, encouraged to think about tourism um, it, it and it follows three characters through a, a one year of, of time in this town and there the three characters each have their own crisis looming that, that and and it all kind of comes to a head but we can't talk about that of course well we don't want to spoil the book that's right that's right um, so tell us the process of getting a book published now this is your second book so I imagine the first one is a lot tougher than the second one or or I'll, I'll I won't uh, give it away you tell us it, it, it's a it's it's a it's a kind of a fun story. My my first book uh, was published by Ulican Books, who at that time had uh, just been sold and had moved to Fernie, BC, um, and they ran a contest. They did a program called the Coffee Shop Author. You went and wrote in your local coffee shop, and then you sent in your part of your manuscript, and the winner got to go to the Fernie Writers Conference and got to have Ulican look at their finished manuscript. So they published my first book. So that's how your first one, you that's won, you my, won. That, I won? I won a reading. 
That's basically. Yeah. It, yeah, it is amazing. It is it is amazing because you can spend a lot of time in the slush pile otherwise. My second book, Ulican was also interested in, and then something went on there that I'm not privy to, and it, it languished for a long time there, and I took it back. And then when I took it back, I had to go through the the work of trying to find a publisher in a, in the more traditional way. So first I thought, well, I'll try to get an agent. So what you do to get an agent is you send out your query letter, which you've spent a lot of time crafting. And if you're lucky or they're interested, they ask to see the full manuscript. And if you're lucky and they're interested in your manuscript, they would take you on and then they would sell your book. But none of the agents, as it turned out, were that interested. One was very close, but in the end she said no. So then I did the same process with with publishers. You send out your query letter. If they're interested, they ask for the full manuscript. If they're interested, they make an offer. And luckily, uh, my someone at Harbor Publishing read my book and uh, they understood it. And that, that yeah. yeah, so that's how I ended up at Harbor Publishing. That's that's amazing, and, and we've been working a little bit with Harbor. They reached out to us and said your book was coming out, and that's how we uh, connected. So they have been champions of yours, and it's been uh, very neat to watch. They have, they have, they they really have. They really understood the book, and they they really they really have been wonderful to work with. Just wonderful. Yeah. That's that's so great. Um, our TRU professor emerita Ginny Ratsoy, in a review of your book, said the author puts her nine years as founder and head of the Valley Sentinel to good use. The subculture of the newspaper office is truly absorbing, the reader's favorite thread. Could you talk a little bit about your time publishing a newspaper and how that impacted your storytelling? Certainly. Uh, one of the things about publishing a newspaper, it you get a lot of material because you interact with a lot of people and a lot of stories and a lot of drama and a lot of community interactions. So. You, you get a really good sense of what a community is, how it functions or doesn't function. It, it, the other thing that I got, which I didn't realize until later that I had gotten, was I got uh, a really practical education in, in writing, um, just because every week you have to have material. So you're writing a lot, you're writing all the time and you're editing submissions that you get from the community. So I had spent a lot of time hands-on with words, and, and that was helpful. Tell us about the Valley Sentinel a little bit. I'm interested about this. Now, you were one of the founders of it, um, so tell us about how you founded a newspaper. Well, yeah, that, that's the thing about, it's one of the beautiful things about the North, or uh, when I say the North, I, I mean north of the Portman Bridge. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so outside of, you know, outside of the Lower Mainland. It's, in small towns, you, you people do all kinds of things that they would never get a job doing anywhere that there was competition. So, yeah, a friend and I started a newspaper. Um, and uh, at one point, we actually printed it in the in the back room. I had a an A.B. Dick offset printer, and oh, it was a terrible machine. Um, we, 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 used to, we used to call it the name, I can't remember from the, the nursery rhyme about the, the little girl that when she was bad, she was very, very bad, but when she was, when she was good, she was very, very good, but when she was bad, she was horrid. That machine was, <laughs> was horrid, it was. So, 
you, you could you could do a thing like that and and we did and it grew and eventually we sent it to a proper printer and um yeah it, it was it, it it was all consuming is it still around the newspaper you know what it was until about a year and a half ago, I think uh, there was. There's two newspapers in Vale Mountain. There was only room for one in the, the Valley Sentinel. Vic- victim of yeah of COVID circumstance. Um, I think it was pre-COVID actually. Okay. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I think it was pre-COVID. How do you? How important do you think the space is of small independent journalism in small towns? I think it's huge. I, I think I think one of the I think one of the terrible casualties of of, of modern technological information is the demise of not just local weeklies but of regional newspapers. I think those daily newspapers in, in every small city served a really important purpose. And, and now we have, we, we, we're stuck with just the national news and, and it's too far away. It doesn't pay enough attention to the local issues that people need to know about. They think that, they think that that what's happening is Ottawa is really important, and not to say that it isn't, but what's happening in Kamloops is really important too. Absolutely, yeah. Our news has become very homogenous. Yes. Um, you know, and it's the same company writing the same stories over and over and over mm-hmm. again. Um, I'd like to dig a little bit more into your open learning experience. Ah, yes. So we talked okay. about the beginning. Um, um, what other classes did you take? What inspired you? And what was it like being an open learning student? pre-internet back in the day well one of the things about being an open learning student back in the day was that this magical plain brown cardboard box you would you'd, you'd sign up and you'd send your check and then you would get in the mail this magical cardboard box that had a flip top and inside it would be all of this all of all of this everything you would need for this course would be in that box what it, what is everything well you'd, you'd have all your course material you'd get your books you'd get uh, um, you'd get the envelopes with in which you would send in the mail your assignments to your instructor slash tutor who would grade them and give you feedback I think at the end I actually could fax some <laughs> assignments but yeah so I'm, I know I'm dating myself and then if there were lectures, there was two ways you could get them. You could get VHS tapes, which was what I got. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm dating myself VHS tapes. But uh, or you could watch your lecture on the Knowledge Network, because in those days the, they were paired. The Knowledge oh, Network okay. and Open Learning were were worked together, and so lectures would appear on on the Knowledge Network at certain times. Yeah, 7 p.m. on a Tuesday. Tune yeah, exactly. in and uh, Tune here's in English and... 101. Mm-hmm. Or Astronomy 100. This, this was, this was, so Astronomy 100 was, was, a, was, a, was an open, university, you know, open learning course that I took that hmm, changed my life. And the fun thing I remember about uh, Astronomy 100 was that the, the VHS tapes of the lectures, the professor had this crazy wild hair and these long sideburns and wore, I kid you not, plaid bell bottoms. Absolutely. I think you have to if you're on TV. If you're an astronomer. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's so neat. Um, yeah, different now. I think everything's internet-based. I'm sure, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it probably is. I'm sure it probably is, yes. So what is Cambium Blue and how does it relate to the story? Oh, well, Cambium is the... I always worry that there will be a forester listening and they'll say, well, it's more complicated than that. but. For our purposes, cambium is an inner layer of the bark of a tree, and the the nutrients 
move back and forth in that layer. And if that layer is eaten by beetles, the tree dies because it can no longer get nutrients. And the blue, as I understand it, comes from when the beetles attack a tree, they bring with them a fungus. And that fungus makes the cambium actually a little bit easier for them to eat. And it stains the wood blue. And so you get, so that's the blue. Interesting. And how does that relate to your new book? And so the, the new book is, is in part about the pine beetle epidemic. And so cambium blue. It's also, it's also a little bit about, I think, that in some ways the, the logging towns, the small towns, the smaller places in the interior are, are, are themselves a bit of a cambium that, that feeds Victoria. And, that, and that, that, that them being decimated is also going to have a, a consequence. That's, yeah, I think, I think you are sp- absolutely spot on. I think that's a really great title. Uh, it's, it's invocative, and, and I think it, it reads uh, really well. Now, you're uh, helping us out a little bit today. Tell us about what you're doing on campus. Oh, today I have a busy day at TRU, which is wonderful. I have, after we're done here, I'm going to go across the way and teach a workshop I have a little mini workshop that I'm taking on the road with me. It's called Right Where You Are. So it's about mm, developing or honing your uh, your writing strategies so that you can get yourself to the page, stay on the page. Excellent. We're so thrilled to have you on campus for the podcast, for the book reading later, for the workshop. It's so wonderful. Tell us where we can find Cambium Blue um, and when is it released? It has been released. It is in fine bookstores near you so you can get it from any i always encourage people to support their local indie bookstores i think that they're as important as their local indie newspapers um so you can if it's not there they'll be able to get it for you you can also get it you know at chapters and uh, people have been sending me pictures apparently you can buy it at save on foods amazing it is amazing and if someone wanted to connect with you how would they they find you more you know what? I don't have a very strong uh, social media presence, partly because uh, it, it eats so much time and I need to spend a bit of time writing. So it, your best bet is probably to find me on Facebook. Facebook. Excellent. Thank you so much, Maureen. It's been a wonderful time talking with you and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the TRU Alumni Podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Dustin McIntyre. Technical Productions by Dustin McIntyre and Andrew Skopenko, recorded at Thompson Rivers University in sunny Kamloops, British Columbia, on the traditional territory of the Kamloops Dishikwepnik peoples.